This is the Personality Psychology Podcast, and I am René Mottos. And today we will be talking again about personality change, but this time more specifically about life events role or measurable life experiences role in personality change. And I'm super happy to be joined by Vipke Blyton and Chris Hopwood from the University of Zurich. Chris has been on the podcast before, but that was quite a long time ago, and Vipke has never been with us before. So I think we could just start by you guys introducing yourself briefly and your work. What are you doing and what's your background? Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, my name is Vipke Blyton. I'm Vipke, not Chris. I'm a professor of personality psychology at the University of Zurich. And I study personality development. I am particularly interested in the possible sources that lead to personality change and also the consequences and the, the ways people change the mechanism. And I'm Chris, and I'm also a professor of personality psychology at the University of Zurich. Maybe redundant with Vipka, definitely derivative of Vipka, although I guess I've got a little bit wider range of interests or less self-control and attention span. I, I was trained as a clinical psychologist, and I've studied a range of things, including personality development, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Okay, let me start with the most basic question ever. Like, how much and how often does personality change? A quick answer would be more than we thought more often and much more than we thought, I would say. We recently published a meta-analysis, which included the results of previous meta-analysis on this topic. And we meta-analyzed over 270 longitudinal studies on mean level change. And we found that on average, there is quite a bit of change across the lifespan, particularly early in life and young adulthood. And also in some traits more than others, it seems. It seems like conscientiousness, for example, is a trait that changes quite a bit as well as emotional stability. Yeah, that would be the really quick answer. I think there's more to this answer because, of course, if you look at the population level only, we brush over a lot of individual differences and change. And when we look at the raw data, it seems depending on who you look at, actually, there are quite dramatic changes in how people describe their personality over time. Ted Schwaber, my previous grad student and now professor at MSU, and I looked at nationally representative sample of over 13,000 people, and we found that many people actually changed more than two standard deviations in certain traits over a span of 10 years, which is really um, intense if you think if you, if you think about this, maybe compared to changes in IQ, if you would know that you would change two standard deviations in your IQ over the next 10 years, you'd be either happy or really concerned, depending which way that would go. I sort of developed a way of answering this question when you, you talk to a journalist or somebody. That's kind of the first question they usually ask. Mm -hmm. And then one way to think about this, if we take the usual sort of 0.8 correlation between trade measurements over, let's say, five years, something you found also in your meta-analysis, right? And then what it really means that if we, you know, imagine a, a scenario where people fill in a questionnaire and they're given feedback, like they're high or medium or low in any given trait, and then they do it again in five years, then what's the probability that they get the same, get, get the same result again in five years? It's about two-thirds, which about which means that about every third individual will get a different result next time. 
And now if you think there are five traits and you multiply these probabilities, then it's about 90% of people will get at least one different mm-hmm. feedback in five years. So it, basically everybody is expected to change uh, in the next five years by this thinking. It's sort of, it's a lot of change, as you say, yeah. You can also benchmark this against other kinds of variables. I just saw Rich Lucas, also from Michigan State University, like Ted, give a talk uh, where he looked at the rank order stability of a wide range of variables in the GSUP, the German Socioeconomic Panel data. And as you'd expect, height is almost perfectly stable, no matter how distant the assessment waves are. Weight is pretty stable. And conscientiousness, as one of the traits that we might study was not nearly as stable as you might think, given the common expectation that personality traits are really stable. For example, it was less stable than political interest or political attitudes. Well, why do people, researchers, think that life events or any measurable life experiences have something to do with these changes in personality traits? This is a strong lay intuition. Like if you told a person who doesn't study psychology, we know personality changes. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of people would say that, well, probably because of stuff that happens to you. What kind of stuff? Well, big stuff like graduating or getting married or having children or et cetera. There's actually some evidence from about a decade ago. Vipka published a study and so did I, ironically, or perhaps serendipitously, showing in a behavior genetic context that changes in personality traits could in part be explained by the reliable features of the non-shared environment. And usually in behavior genetic studies, of course, the non-shared environment doesn't do much, but in this case it seemed. And this was particularly in young adults, so it made you wonder, well, like, what was it about young adulthood that people might be doing that would be different than say their twin or anybody else. And it could be things like education or selecting into certain kinds of roles, work, relationships, what kinds of friends they're hanging out with, what kinds of habits they have. And there's a lot of opportunities for a lot of different choices at that age. And so this is also embedded in a lot of theories about personality change that that life experiences come with potential changes in social roles, social networks, the kinds of behaviors and habits that you sort of need to do in order to adapt to whatever new situation you find yourself in. And all of these changes in attitudes and behaviors, et cetera, could build up to enduring personality changes. So if you move into a new career, you might have to get up more reliably. You might have to treat authority figures with a different level of respect, et cetera. And all these things could end up leading you to be more conscientious and stuff like that. And here we're talking about predictable personality change. So it's kind of in the same way across individuals. So we can build a model to predict how traits change. Now, what what is the evidence currently about life events and personality change? I mean, you have been at the forefront of this work for a long time, yeah? And uh, recently you were involved in a paper that summarized, integrated most of this work that has been done so far. So you're literally the best people to ask this question. This paper is a meta-analysis. The first author is Janina Bühler, also co-authored with several other people who were involved in this project, which was, of course, yeah, it was important to have multiple people on it for various reasons. One was that we wanted to make sure that we included, hopefully, most of the existing studies in this literature, which turned out to be quite tricky, right? Because we first had to identify what is a study that really tested the effects of life events and those life events that are considered 
relevant here on changes in personality traits. And we included uh, 44 studies that looked at several events in the domains of love and work. And so we looked at multiple life events. And our idea was to hopefully bring more clarity to this literature. And I don't know if that really worked, I would say. It was pretty clear from the systematic review that the effects are, one could say, all over the place in the sense that some studies found effects, others didn't now. One reason, obviously, is that these effects are small. Another possible reason that we thought was that life events were assessed in different ways and that it would just be good to integrate this literature to get a better idea of the effect sizes, what we can expect, but also to understand potential moderators. Why is it that in some, some studies we find effects and in others not? The results, I think, to summarize would be that the effects are indeed small, that we find more effects of life events in the work domain. I think there's pretty good, I would say, evidence that graduation from school or college and the first job are related to conscientiousness. There are some other effects too, but I think it's it's really the, the pattern that we find or the more interesting finding is that there is this substantial between study heterogeneity. And now we have this documented in, in this meta-analysis and the question still remains, why is this? And, and one thing that we, of course, found is like we, we could now interpret this as the glass is half full, like there is something going on, we should find out what it is, or the glass is half empty, maybe this is not as good of evidence as we wanted to see it to really, to really dig more in this area. But now you know, you have a sort of benchmark to think about. Let's talk about a little bit about the effect sizes, because you mentioned this, like in, in, the, in the terms that we are usually thinking, like correlations, standard deviation differences, or maybe there's a way to put this in a more lay meaning. Like, let's imagine I am somebody who's sitting exactly in the middle of the distribution in consciousness right now. And now I'm finally getting a job. In fact, it's the normative thing to do then would be to become a little bit more conscientious, I guess. Now, where should I be then next? Like I'm moving from the 50% percentile to 55 or 60 or something. What sort of lift can I expect from this experience? The effect size for that particular uh, question was a quarter of a standard deviation. Yeah, around, I don't know what that would be exactly in percentiles, but... Somewhere in the range you just described. Yeah, not a huge effect, but a reliable one. That was one of the biggest effects that we found. The increase in conscientiousness as a function of the first job was about 0.28. Entering in a relationship makes your life a little bit better, according to this view. And that, I think, was the single biggest effect. And that was a Cohen's D of 0.34. So about a third of a standard deviation. That's fairly typical average size in psychology you can, you can get. So, Vipke, you, you mentioned that now you have this documented at there's a reason to move on and work on. So what would be the next steps in this work? What kind of evidence do you think would finally reveal the um, robust effects of life events on personality change? What's the ideal thing that could happen? Yeah, Vipka led a group, a bunch of colleagues a few years ago on an EJP paper, a European Journal of Personality paper, in which we outlined um, what we described as the longitudinal experience-wide association studies, or LIVAS, sort of picking up from the GWAS idea and genetics. 
And basically the idea of the paper was to say, we, we sort of intuited that this body of work on life events and personality change was not bearing as much fruit as we would like. And our thought was maybe if we were to improve our methods, we would get a little bit more robust, maybe stronger, but certainly more precise estimates. And there was four major domains that we thought maybe could be improved. The first has to do with timing. Um, a lot of this research uses pre-existing data that wasn't designed to ask this question. And so in many studies, there's a pre-post two-wave study with a life event in between, and that's not a very sensitive study for this kind of thing. A lot of times, even if there was multiple waves, they they weren't carefully timed in relation to events. And so, so studies in which there was more assessments that were more frequent, more carefully timed, that were that had multiple assessments before and after events so that you could model trajectories leading up to and after events and could allow us to get a, a better, more precise estimate of trajectories as a function of events. The second sort of arm was, had to do with sampling. First of all, as we all know, um, the minority world and weird countries are oversampled in research in general. So we know very little about um, how personality develops and how personality develops as a function of life events in most of the world. But also there are certain ages, in particular old age, where we know less because there's fewer studies about that. So more diverse sampling. And obviously it's always nice to have larger samples so you can test things like moderation, individual differences and in chains, et cetera. Um, the third was measurement. Almost all of the personality assessments in this research, or maybe all of the assessments are self-report questionnaires. They're often brief questionnaires because they're implemented in panel studies that were not designed to study personality. They rarely measure the mechanisms that our theories suggest should explain personality changes like attitude changes, self-reflection, changes in behaviors, et cetera. They rarely measure environment or context beyond the, the fact that a life event occurred. So multi-method measurements of all three of those domains, not only the traits, but the underlying uh, proposed processes and the environment and context. And fourth, to do experiments. This is something that you talked about on the last podcast with uh, Christoph, Gabriel, and Matthias, who have been doing interventions to try to change personality. This is a really nice way to try to figure out um, what can be done, maybe not necessarily linked to life events, but what can be done to change personality. Since the publication of that paper a couple of years ago in EJP, I think a couple of other interesting things have happened in the field. People like Micah Luman and Peter Hainer and others have been doing work on subjective experiences of life events. So um, we can't maybe assume that, for example, a divorce is experienced the same way by all people who have a divorce. For some people, that might be a victory. And for some people, that might be a failure. And so what the person makes of an event might matter. And, and some of the work that they've done has shown that that's the case. I also think it's maybe important to think a little bit more carefully about our concepts and theories. A bunch of our colleagues were nice enough to comment on the paper that Yanina Bueller led um, that was published recently. And there's one example that really struck me as creative. Marie Haneke and Kai Horstman made the point that like what we would expect to happen in the context of a life event and whether it might be possible that personality relevant behavior might change a lot, even if the personality trait didn't. And in fact, 
personality relevant behavior might change precisely in order to keep a personality trait stable. So for example, if you have a child and you're a fairly conscientious person, because life is stressful and you're tired, you might have to do a lot of conscientiousness relevant behavior in order to keep appointments, keep your house clean, exercise, etc. And so the underlying mechanisms that we tie to conscientiousness might change a lot. They might have to increase a lot in order to keep the trait stable. So this this really had me thinking that maybe we're thinking about how we design and conduct these studies pretty differently, or maybe we're, we need to think about that differently. It's also a nice example of why it would be nice to work with clever people like Maria Kai. Yes. Is this, by the way, again, this old dichotomy or the, the people differentiating between traits and characteristic adaptations? Is that the same thing here? This is another big topic. I think that, yeah, maybe this is one way to think about it. But I but I do think it goes even one step further in the sense that they were talking about more specific behaviors rather than, I think, characteristic adaptations are also a bit more stable than what Kai and Marie were thinking about. But yeah, it could be the case that the characteristic adaptations actually change in the service of maintaining a certain trait level, is mm -hmm. the idea. There's even behavior that changes, but no, not even characteristic adaptations or maybe characteristic adaptations as well, but not really trait. But now let me ask, do you, after this meta-analysis and finding that well, the glass is half full, half empty maybe, do you still remain committed to the idea that there are these effects to be discovered in the first place? Yeah, I think this is a good question, like in the sense, like how often do you need to get beaten down before <laughs> you say, okay, well, not personally committed, but I think we continue to believe that this is a viable hypothesis, but I think we also learned a lot. And looking back, I think we also realized the way we approach this, at least I can only speak for myself, was maybe a little bit too naive, or I had this Pollyanna view of the world that if I look at a big enough event, I will find a big enough effect if I have a big enough sample. It's a very good question, Rene, because I do think that it has to do with a bigger problem in psychology, namely the fact that we often stick to our theories and are not willing right to give up because we think oh we just haven't looked carefully enough and of course if if there's just enough evidence maybe it would also be good to give up a hypothesis in the service of something new here however i think that the problem at least i have in my research is that i think we weren't even close to having a theory right this is the problem because it was just a hypothesis and the way chris described this earlier made it clear that we have been far away from having a specific model that says like if x happens then y will happen after because of process z we are far away of having a formal model or a specific theory that can be tested with methods that are so closely connected to that theory that we can say yeah this was really a good test and so it was a strange experience to realize this to learn this but it was also a good one to think okay maybe i have to change the way we do this research and i think i began to read more also about the development of theories and psychology in general and learning about the things that we need to do at a more abstract level and I do think what we need to do first is to specify our theory 
about the reasons why life events would lead to personality change and how, under which circumstances, for whom, for which traits, about the timeline, about the maybe facets, like you say, about the characteristic adaptations involved in it to then say we can get rid of this hypothesis. Of course, this is an sort of iterative process also at this point. For us personally, I think it comes down to also going back to the drawing board and maybe deriving more specific hypotheses and trying to refine our theory. Mm -hmm. Perhaps this is related to the my worry often is that the real monster we're facing in psychology is the fact that it's so intertwined with lay theories. And we have all our intuitions and we often mix our own intuitions up with reasons why we actually sh should be expecting that something happens. And so we're testing our intuitions and, and it's hard to disentangle all this sort of lay thinking from actual scientific theory. So as, as you said as well, the reason why you have been doing this research in the first place is basically intuition, pretty much lay intuition that life events should change personality. But now because the evidence isn't really supporting it in the way you expected it would. Now that motivates you to go back and start thinking about it in a more rigorous scientific way. I wouldn't disagree, but I think I think it's not only intuition. I do think that a, a method that we have used extensively is observation. And I think we've been, and this is a normal process in, in I think, any field and any science, that you have to observe and understand a phenomenon really well before you can understand its relations with others or develop a theory and exclude other viable theories, right? And I think we are still in the, in the process of observing because for example, the life events hypothesis is also based on the observation that most of the change happens at the time when most of the life events occur normatively in a lifespan. And most of the change occurs in traits that seem to be sort of helpful if you want to master certain life transitions. I do think that there's a bit more than intuition, but I think the specificity of our predictions is not really at the point where we can design a study that would be really rigorous or where we can really say this finding is a definite falsification even of our hypothesis. So I think we are not really at the state of theory development yet. Okay, I think you're preempting my question now, but I was just going to, because we are talking about rigorous science here now, and I was thinking, okay, how could we falsify this hypothesis? Is, is, is there, maybe it's too early to ask this question now, uh, given what you just said, but can you imagine at least one sort of killer uh, piece of evidence that would make you change your mind and say, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. And we expect that there won't be any predictable effects of life events on personality. You mean that we can say, let's do something else? This is a really good question. I, don't, I cannot really, I cannot think of one, that, that, that would be one piece of evidence right now. It was interesting in the comments to the to Yanina's paper. I was sort of surprised. I think maybe fifteen or so of our colleagues wrote uh, commentaries, and I was surprised by the variability in reactions. There were a few people that more or less said we should give up on this hypothesis. We sort of knew it wasn't going to work out, and it didn't, and it was a waste of time. The majority of opinion, I think, was this is still a useful hypothesis. We just don't have methods that are sensitive enough to give up on it yet. And so I think for most people in the field, they would say we're not ready to say that there's any particular study that would make us give up yet. Yeah, I know this was a maybe a little unfair question at this point. Yes. But 
it makes sense. Yes. There's one possibility, of course. Again, we're talking about predictable effects of life events here, but maybe it's the effects are there, but they're just unpredictable. Denise Daniels and Robert Blomin wrote this paper over 30 years ago already, where they predicted that the life events or any sort of experiences effects on any trade would basically be largely idiosyncratic and unpredictable. It's known as the gloomy prospect. What do you think about this? Is, could this also be a scenario in the case? The effects are there, but it's just, you know, we just can't find them. There's certainly a lot of room for, say, ideographic patterns, nonlinear patterns, uh, sort of chaotic patterns that are rarely examined because this would take so much data on so many individuals that we just don't have the kinds of designs that would even allow us to start looking for those kinds of things. I think if we zoom back, you can kind of like think about astronomy, for example. The telescope was invented just over 400 years ago, and Newton articulated gravity just about 100 years after that. And black holes were discovered about 50 years ago, which was about 300 years after we knew about gravity. And they still really haven't figured out black holes exactly. And that's just one of the things that astronomers are interested in, right? So they had a huge head start. They have better technology. And, you know, they're figuring out stuff that was unimaginable when the telescope was invented. So, you know, I think it, it's now easier to gather data than it ever has been. It's easier to, com to do computations on large amounts of data. So one can imagine significant progress happening on questions about how does personality development and what role does life events play. On the other hand, it could be centuries before we come to a satisfying evidence-based model for exactly how environmental dynamics shape personality development. So this is gloomy in the sense that we might not be around to know the answer to this question. And in fact, the way humans are going now, self-destruction may happen before we ever figure it out as a species. But I guess in principle, I think that personality development is systematic and thus it's possible to use the scientific method to understand it, which I don't think is actually inconsistent with the gloomy prospect model, which leaves room for the possibility that it is in principle predictable. It's just that we're so far away that it's sort of hard to see the end of that story at this point. One way to benchmark this, obviously, would be to think about other fields of psychology as well. Right. Are there, can you think of any other fields of psychology that have made more solid, let me use this word, solid progress in identifying specific experiences that in a predictable way make a lasting difference in certain characteristics? Clinical psychology, maybe social psychology, developmental psychology, cognitive psychology. They don't focus on traits per se, at least explicitly, but implicitly many of their constructs are very similar to personality traits. So is there anything to borrow from there? This is a this is a question that sort of mixes also a question about the field and the methods that that is used, maybe, right? And it sort of boils down to who's better at establishing causal effects and or who's more willing to claim causal <laughs> effects, maybe. Well, one, I, I do think that, um, I mean, there's been attempts in clinical psychology to change what could be called personality traits and Brent Roberts and colleagues had a meta-analysis in 2017 in which they integrated the results of uh, randomized controlled trials in clinical psychology. And all of these studies didn't focus necessarily on personality traits or on big five traits, but they all included those pre-post and or with control groups as part of their measurements, batteries. And they found, yeah, that actually psychotherapy had 
quite a big effect, even over a short amount of times, especially on emotional stability, which is perhaps not surprising given the given the big link between neuroticism or low emotional stability and psychopathology. And um, I think they found that, I, I don't remember the effect size, but the effect size were quite big to me, even over six weeks or so occurred. And they also found that the changes appeared to last in the studies that included a follow-up. I do think that there is evidence in other fields. When you think really about personality traits, my impression is that when I talk to scholars from other areas of psychology, they're still actually convinced that traits can't change at all. So they would think like, why don't you just focus on what you usually do, like the stable parts? And I do think that some methods that are typically used in other fields can also be really helpful. For example, in a study with Ted Schwaber and others, we used a quasi-experimental design, which is more, I think, commonly used in other areas. And we used methods from well, geographical methods, really, combined with quasi-experimental methods and methods that are more used in economics to study the effects of lead exposure on personality. And in this study, we had over one and a half million U.S. residents and also Europeans and we found that those people who were born in areas with a higher atmospheric lead exposure as a child had then less adaptive personality profiles as an adult. And with less adaptive, I mean lower emotional stability, lower conscientiousness, lower agreeableness. And the interesting part here was that there was this natural experiment building because in the U.S. there was the Clean Air Act in 1970, after which there was a reduction in leaded gasoline. And so we found that people who were born after the leaded gasoline reductions took place actually also had more adaptive personality profiles. So there was this connection between place and time that suggests that there are environmental effects that can be systematically predicted on our personality. Yeah. When I look at evidence from other fields, I'm not an expert, but just occasionally when I see something, I'm often also notice that the effects are actually small there as well. Like if you look at things that would be so trivial, seemingly so trivial, like childhood abuse or neglect, and uh, its relation was later mental health issues like depression, the correlation is like 0.10 or something meta-analytically. So it's actually very small. So, you know, you can imagine this is pretty much the strongest effect you could ever ever have anywhere, right? But uh, it's still small. So in, the, in that context, it's not surprising at all that these associations are, are quite small. But Chris, you mentioned that it's easier now to collect data than it ever has been. And this leads me to the next question I have. Um, could there be any parallels to what has happened in genetics? Well, at least the way the research that has been done and personality change and life events reminds me quite a lot of the sort of candidate gene approach in the genetics where researchers had an idea about a specific genetic variant that according to a theory or intuition would lead to a certain trait. And then they would link the variations in the gene with variations in the traits. We know now quite well that this research didn't lead anywhere really. And the whole field of genetics has turned to a quite different, radically different approach. Now completely atheoretically scanning through now what 10 million SNPs or these genetic variants and linking these with any traits taken measure in huge samples. 
And I think many people think this has led to success. Also, perhaps not in a way people initially imagined success would look like, but still success. Do you think something like this could also happen in your field where we, instead of looking at specific sort of candidate life events and carefully selected based on theory or intuition, but you're just kind of a-theoretically scans through as many experiences as you can, linking these with any traits in huge samples, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions eventually, and then see certain patterns emerging. Yeah, I mean, I think personality psychology could uh, find a lot of creative ways to use the intellectual and financial resources available to the geneticists. Mm -hmm. I I do think there's a lot of potential in this specific idea. One of the comments, I guess we're playing a game now where we have to talk about Ted and every one of our answers, but (laughs) Ted Schwabe again, and uh, his colleague Arrestus Papayoanu, I think, and I apologize, Arrestus, if I got that name wrong, actually came to a very different conclusion than any of the other commenters Unionist life events meta-analysis, which is they claim that if you assume that people will have a certain probability of experiencing different major life events and that these events accumulate, that the effects that we reported, even though they're small in isolation, would add up to largely explain the kinds of normative patterns that Vipka showed in her meta-analysis that we we sort of led this discussion off with. So it was interesting because most people were either said, yeah, life events don't matter. They're sort of like the candidate gene studies. This is the wrong, wrong way to think about it. Or they said life events might matter, but only if we change the way we're thinking about it, which is sort of analogous to GWAS. Uh, but Ted said, well, maybe our results actually did show that life events matter using the designs we're already using. But bigger picture, I think this is related to one of the major take-home messages of the earlier paper, the Longitudinal Event-Wide Association Studies paper, that Studying these kinds of phenomena just simply require a lot more frequent and more sophisticated assessments and much larger and more diverse samples. And all of this takes a lot more resources than we typically have. Normally, the work that we've been doing is not funded because we go to panel studies that were collected for something else and where the data is available and we ask questions that are significantly constrained by the kinds of data that we have access to. So for this reason, I think the main take-home message of that paper was less about the specific methodological innovations that we should try to move towards, but more about how the field should perhaps think differently and more similarly to the way the geneticists have been thinking about it around working together, sharing resources, sharing expertise. Um, And I think the kind of design that you just described would be a good example of the kind of thing we could as a field work on together more productively. Unfortunately, that's going to be the sound downside if it happens, like what has also happened in genetics. I think this is something we spoke about with Michelle Nivar last year in episode number 25 of this podcast, uh, is that they have had success in some ways in genetics, but it's just has shown how much more complicated the whole thing is. And, and, and many people ask, like, what are we going to do with these results? It's just so complicated. We really need these huge samples. Any individual effect is so small, and we can only see the signal if we aggregate, like, thousands, maybe tens of thousands little effects together. And then we can get some statistical prediction of, of traits or, or anything they're carrying. Now, if the same is going to happen uh, for personality change, predicting that, say, from life experiences, I, I see it can have certain uses, but it also might disappoint people, the complexity of the whole thing. I do think that is why we have to tackle the problem from both sides, maybe. 
but trying to continue to do data-driven research like the one that you just described, maybe like without any theory or with like very broad hypotheses to understand the phenomenon better and I think also understand it better at multiple levels. Some other people are doing really important work about time frames, right? So often we utilize data that has been collected as a side product of some panel study, but there are, I think we also need more studies to understand at what rate personality changes, for example. And all of these are maybe studies that can be done without any particular hypothesis at, 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 at some point, but just to better describe the phenomenon. And I think only when we have that, just as in genetics, I think it's possible to derive a theory that is so specific that we can rule out other theories, right? This is um, in a paper that I read about theory development. I talked about this recently at a conference. This is a paper by Ironin and Bringman, and they use an example from, from the history of astronomy. And their example is that in the history of, of astronomy, the phenomenon are the patterns of the movements of the planets, and they've been observed for centuries and centuries. And yet this model by Ptolemy, that the planets move around the Earth, it just actually was so sustainable or hold for such a long time because it was was difficult to come up with a theory that described this phenomenon actually equally well or better, right? Because the phenomenon was so well understood that there's very few degrees of freedom to just say, oh, maybe it's this, or maybe it's this. And I think we aren't there yet with personality development. We just be begun to understand. So I think we need to do much more groundwork, theory-free to, to understand what's actually going on before we can come up with a very good theory to explain this. So on the one hand, I'm a scientist, like, and I, I would love, love to see you making progress and identifying, lining up all these life experiences that in a predictable way influence personality. And so we can have a model predicting who's going to change in personality in which specific ways. On the other hand, there's a humanist side in me that is sort of not very thrilled about this view. This side of me takes quite a bit of comfort in the realization that personality change and how this really is how we psychologically are is fundamentally maybe not completely unpredictable but to a large extent at, le at least based on the current knowledge unpredictable personally i i, I wouldn't like to be at the mercy of uh, predictably at the mercy of specific life events just happen to come my, my way and they the kind of events that are unpredictable are not related to my own fates uh, already and it also can be unfair when you think about it it's just some people have nice things happening to them and their personality changes in a nice way and or, or remain stable and some people have just bad things happen and their personality also predictably goes in a way that might not be so desirable so it does sound unfair but now if this is not the case and the personality change is more unpredictable, or perhaps it's because our own reactions to the events that happen to us matter more than the events per se, which is something you alluded to before, that it seems to be these reactions seem to be matter. So this gives us quite a bit more agency and control over our own uniqueness, you know, for better or worse in any specific case, but at least we are our own makers. What do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, I'm also a scientist and a sentientist, which is like humanist plus. And I think these two worldviews can be reconciled in materialism, right? That I'm 
I think we're all with Thorndike and believing that if something exists, it exists in some amount and therefore can be measured. And so I guess, given that perspective, I think it's important to distinguish between the fact that on the one hand, our methods are very crude. We know very little about personality in general. We know very little about how to measure it, what shapes its changes, etc. And on the other hand, we have a method that has proven to help us understand things that we didn't think were ever understandable, that is the scientific method, and that in principle, eventually humans should be able to explain and predict psychological processes in a way that's more satisfying. And I don't actually think that doing so would take away from the part of you that's a humanist, right? In, in other words, the fact that something is explainable doesn't make it non-beautiful or not surprising necessarily. Again, to use astronomy as a metaphor, understanding that the, the other planets and the sun don't revolve around the earth doesn't make the solar system or the universe less magical or interesting or incredible. In fact, I think you could make the opposite argument that understanding more and more about the universe makes it even more beautiful and more fantastic and more interesting. And so I guess my own view is that in this sense, a material scientific worldview, which implies the potential to be able to predict human behavior is compatible with humanism in contrast to something like mysticism. And it doesn't have to take away from the fact that humans are still unique and each person and each person's experience is, is amazing, but rather this view can augment that point of view. I think I agree with you, Chris. I also want to add that we are pretty good at predicting what life events people do, right? Namely using their personalities. We are not accidentally stumbling into like having a job or a certain job or in a, living in a certain environment. We are actually pretty predictable. And I, I do think that this is also part of the problem, maybe why we have this problem then predicting changes thereafter, because we have the selection effects to deal with. And I agree with Chris. I, I, I think... To me, the idea that I understand why certain changes might occur might, might actually be really helpful for certain groups who may be less surprised and therefore suffer from certain changes, right? If you knew that it is very common, for example, to experience a dip in emotional stability after certain life events and you could uh, communicate that and maybe take preventative measures or even offer then help or just knowing that I think can be really helpful. So I would I would err on the side it's worthwhile understanding these changes and the, the factors that lead to changes. This is related actually to something that I think is pretty close to our fingertips already. And many people, including some of the commenters on the newspaper, have talked about, which is the possibility of sequencing life events. This is sort of implicit in the analysis that Ted did. But, you know, you can only be divorced if you've been married, for example, and, and being married increases the probability of childbirth, and you can only be retired if you've had a job, et cetera. So there, there is some potential, even in data that we already have, probably in figuring out how to sequence events in a way that could give us some more leverage. That's, I think, one thing that we could do fairly readily that would incorporate the selection effects that Vipka is talking about to try to get a better handle on how life events are related to change. This might be a good place to end the podcast. And so I thank you for joining me and discussing this topic that I think is generally very exciting and interesting for a lot of people. Thank you very much. It was really fun. Thanks yeah, thanks a lot. Us. Nice to hang out.